0: Welcome back, listeners, as we continue with part two of our comparison of the Septuagint and the Masoretic text with Dr. John Weaver. In what ways have these two versions of the Old Testament impacted the New Testament writings in early Christianity? What was the perspective of first century Jews and Christians regarding these two text forms? There's so much more to consider, so let's begin. So we've been focusing primarily so far on how the Masoretic text and the Septuagint in particular have affected or impacted the Old Testament. Um, but I thought maybe we can transition and take a look more at the New Testament. So from my studies, it seems to me that the Septuagint is pretty unique in this way, whereas most translations are created based on the biblical text that they are a translation of. It seems like the Septuagint was not only a translation made from Old Testament scriptures, but actually played a role, maybe a significant role, in the formation of the New Testament scriptures. Um, Is there any truth to that, or what are your thoughts on that?
1: Oh, definitely. Yeah. It would be hard to overstate the importance of the Old Greek or the Septuagint translation of the Hebrew Bible on Christianity, the early church, and the gospel accounts. Of Jesus' life and teaching, the New Testament writers use both the Hebrew Bible and the Greek Bible, but the predominant, overwhelming source is the Greek Bible, the Old Testament. And so when we talk about what the scriptures were for um, Paul and and the other early apostles and for Jesus, in, for the most part, it would have been the Greek. Uh, Septuagint. Now, let me explain one thing about that. That's certainly the case for early Jesus followers, early Christians. It's quite clear that Jesus, though he would have likely known Greek, uh, maybe like um, I would uh, compare it to someone, I I lived in South Texas for a while, and I picked up a a good deal of Spanish just by the cultural context in which I was, similar to someone who lives in an area of the U.S. which has a heavy, say, Mexican or other Latino population, would know Spanish, Right at some at some kind of functional level, Jesus would have known Greek, kind of in a in a way to kind of likely been able to facilitate um, some basic understanding. Though he would have spoken Hebrew, and and actually would have spoken Aramaic, and have known Hebrew uh, primarily for religious reasons, able to read the Bible. So Jesus himself, from the gospel accounts, we know read from the Torah scrolls, from the the the, the prophets, and so that would have been Hebrew, but. His earliest followers are quoting um, not so much at all from the Hebrew Bible, but from the Greek translation of the Hebrew. And even when they describe Jesus reading from what would have certainly been a Hebrew version of the Old Testament, their account of it has him speaking in the Greek Septuagint. And so, to your question, does it shape, does it form? The New Testament, yes, and, and in a variety of deep ways, uh, and, and then broadly, given it's the pervasiveness of, it, of its use. And so, you know, there are, there are two extremes, I want to say. You know, I often talk about kind of avoiding the ditches. When we talk about the Septuagint, one is just to ignore its existence. And, and we can fall into that. We just don't, we just, and I, I appreciate you, you having this podcast to kind of acknowledge this is, this is something that people should know about whether you're a Christian or not, but particularly if you're a Christian. So a ditch would be, let's ignore its existence. Another ditch would be to say, well, the Septuagint is the inspired word of God because the, the apostles and the early Christians used it in their quotation of the Old Testament. And I'd say that's another ditch to avoid. I think we're going to talk more about that. But so there's a, there's a nuanced approach to this, I think is an appropriate approach, when we talk about the, the nature of the authority of the Septuagint, but it would certainly be a, an error, I would say, just to ignore the fact that, look, when, when Paul and Peter and, and the other, most of the other New Testament writers are quoting the Old Testament, they're quoting the Septuagint or the Greek translation.
0: So that was actually going to be one of my questions, is whether or not Jesus quoted the Septuagint. And so it seems what you're saying is maybe Jesus would have been quoting the Hebrew Bible, but the New Testament authors' accounts, they word it as if you were quoting the Septuagint. So maybe what are some examples of times where Jesus is said to be quoting the Septuagint? Yeah, and and of course we
1: don't know, apart from the Gospel account, what Jesus did. And I believe the Gospel account, when it says that Jesus says what he said, but I think we just need to recognize uh, where it's coming from. Um, so, for example, probably the one of the best known examples of of Jesus uh, reading from the Old Testament and it relaying a distinctive Septuagint passage or translation of the Old Testament is in Luke chapter four. Well known passage: Jesus has just come out of his temptation. He's in his hometown of Nazareth. He stands up uh, among his townspeople. He has this scroll? He's reading from Isaiah sixty-one verses one to two. Uh, this this uh, messianic passage it was talking about the uh, God's uh, servant, um, and uh, he's reading there from Isaiah sixty-one um, verses one to two. And the Hebrew reads like something like this: uh, "The spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted." proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison of those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And that's what Jesus says. But there's also a line inserted between the mention of the liberty of the captives and setting a liberty to those who are oppressed. And it's the line in the Septuagint, which says, the Spirit's upon me, is anointed me to recovering of sight to the blind. That mention of sight To the blind is, as far as we know, distinctive, unique to the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And there are a number of examples like this, um, but this is one where you have Jesus basically reading, it seems, a Hebrew scroll that includes a Septuagint translation of the Hebrew. Now, what's going on there? There's different ways to explain that. You say, well, he has a version of the Hebrew which includes that translation, Maybe that's the right, but it seems to be that that's being included in there. And in any event, the inspired gospel writer is including that because it's important to the the message of, of Luke, that Jesus not only is someone whom is importantly proclaiming salvation in relationship of our spirit to God, but also, healing of our body <laughs> back to a, a state of holiness, uh, wholeness, I should say. Um, and that's oftentimes seen in, in, in giving a sight to the blind. So, this is an important example where the Septuagint reveals the nature of Jesus in a way that is inspired, because it's from an inspired writer, but it's likely originated in a translation of the original Hebrew text which was the inspired original text um, in Israel. So that's an example there. And, and you, see, you see other examples of that in the Gospels, where not coming from the mouth of Jesus, but coming from the mouth of the, of the Gospel writer, in other words, some sort of an elaboration, uh, a narration on the life of Jesus, um, the Septuagint is allowing the New Testament writer to, to make a point which he wouldn't otherwise be able to make if he was quoting just from the Hebrew. Uh, just two quick examples: uh, Matthew chapter two, verse fourteen to fifteen. Um, Joseph and Mary have uh, brought their son Jesus down to Egypt, and God reveals that He's going to come back out of Egypt. And He quotes there from Hosea eleven as a fulfillment prophecy. That is to say that when He comes back out of Egypt home, that's a fulfillment of what was spoken by the prophet in Hosea 11.1, one, "Out of Egypt I called my son." What a wonderful connection! connecting, you know, the Old Testament salvation of Israel out of Egypt. Israel was God's son, according to the prophets. Um, Matthew uses that, but the complicating factor is is that that is the Hebrew of it. Yes, my son, the Septuagint translation doesn't use the son. It uses, uh, I recalled my children or his children. So that's a case where Matthew has used the Hebrew so he didn't use the Septuagint. I don't know the reasons, obviously, but that's the reality. So the point there is that sometimes the New Testament writers use the, the Masoretic text, what we know as the Masoretic text, the Hebrew. Other times he uses the Greek. Let me just give you one quick example, and then I'll push it back over to you. He he says um, over in Matthew chapter 3, verse 3, this is the story about John the Baptist. Now he's preparing the way, and again, it's a fulfillment prophecy. He says in Matthew 3, verse 3, This is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he says the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He's quoting here from Isaiah 40, verse 3. And what he's making the point of is that you have this ascetic figure of John the Baptist out in the wilderness, you know, in the the Jordan desert, and he's crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, again, if you look at the Masoretic text, the Hebrew and the Greek, what you find is this is a case, contrary to the example I just gave out of Matthew 2, where Matthew is utilizing, it seems, the Greek translation. Because in the Greek, it says, like Matthew says, a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. So again, that's so appropriate to John the Baptist, this wilderness figure. The Hebrew, by contrast, doesn't have the voice crying out of the wilderness, but is rather a voice saying that when you go into the wilderness, when you when you get there, prepare the way of the Lord. And that doesn't work so well in the story of the gospel. The Masoretic text says, A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Now, I understand that could that could work just as well in a certain way, but that's not as good (laughs) for the story that Matthew's telling. And so you see Matthew quoting quite explicitly from the Greek translation and not the the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text there uh, describing Hebrew. So the New Testament writers are using the Septuagint, and that's true not only in the way that they they quote the text, but in the, the words that they use to describe the most important concepts. Um, in the New Testament, and maybe we can get into that. It's kind of another lens uh, through which to understand um, the influence of the Septuagint on the the New Testament.
0: And I, I guess there's some sense to that, because if the New Testament authors are presenting a Greek text to a primarily Greek audience because at the time of the writings the Gentile Christian population would have been greater larger than the Jewish Christian population simply you know statistically there were more Gentiles in the world to be preached to and so would they then be borrowing accurate Greek translations to present these new doctrinal ideas because the New Testament is full of you know, new ideas and changes to original ideas. So it's a presentation of new information. And so since they're presenting this to a different kind of audience, uh, is that maybe why they're putting the Septuagint a bit more to kind of remix it for the, the new purpose?
1: That makes sense. It's a great question. I think the answer is yes. Uh, so two points on this. One, remember that it's not just the Gentiles that are Greek speakers. It's the vast majority of Jews, right? So. You know, the studies that we have show that within Palestine, you did have a a high concentration of Hebrew or an Aramaic uh, knowledge. But then once you get outside Israel, I mean, you're in the diaspora in a Hellenistic culture. Hellenistic means of or related to uh, Greek. Um, And so um, Greek influenced culture coming out of Alexander the Great in the um, 300s BC. Many of the Jews themselves, I mean, the first Christians were entirely Jews. But to your point, yes, they are conveying ideas using a Greek translation, which would have been most readily understandable to Greek speakers. And so you can talk about the, the, the verses that of the Septuagint, which in an oral, oral culture, Greek speakers would have probably remembered the, the Greek translation of the Bible more readily than the Hebrew. Um, and so that's an important message. But then also the words that they use, even at the atomistic, the individual word level, the Septuagint translation is influential upon early Christian theology. And by theology, I just mean understanding and expressions about God and and the things of God. So there are there's a whole set of examples that you can research on this. the the the, the examples which I would just highlight, I think, as being some of the most um, Kind of profound on this would be uh, first of all regarding Jesus, and then second regarding the church and the message about Jesus. So I'll just be very brief. In the Old Testament, when the Septuagint translates the name for God, Yahweh, which is is one of the two primary names for God in the Old Testament, which is a, the, the most holy of the names, it uses the Greek word kurios which is, um, uh, we translate Lord. And so in the New Testament, when Jesus is in an overtly devotional and religious way referred to as Lord, there is an implicit claim there that Jesus is Yahweh, that Jesus is God. And that comes to kind of a full um, kind of statement in the Gospel of John, where at the end of the Gospel you have Thomas um, uh, kind of uh, giving a summary and climactic confession concerning Jesus that uh, he is Lord and God, and that short phrase summing up uh, the Israelite, the Jewish conception of the name of God as applying to Jesus of Nazareth, and so the Greek curios allows for that direct translation of the divine identity, the divine person upon the man, Jesus. And, and that's facilitated by an understanding of what "curios" means, and that's done by the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. And so you see that in a, a variety of ways. Um, the other kind of great example of this uh, is the word for church. You know, if you were to go up to the average Greek speaker in um, first-century Palestine or even Athens and say, "Hey, let's go to the ecclesia," you might have ended up down at the courthouse or at the you know the kind of the public um, gymnasium or a, a place where the speeches were given because ecclesia usually meant some kind of a civic assembly, a church. But the reality is, in the Hebrew Bible, when it was translated into the Greek, this word ecclesia or church uh, assembly is used repeatedly to describe God's people in their gathering. A classic example of this is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, where the, uh, the congregation at Horeb or Sinai is described, the giving of the law there. And in 4, verse 10, it describes how the people stood before their God at Sinai, Horeb, and he speaks to Moses, and he says, "'Gather the people to me that I may let them hear my words.'" And that's the Hebrew, which is our English translation, but in the Greek, and as you see this repeatedly, there is kind of an explanatory addition where it says, God says, commanded to stand before the Lord their God at Horeb in the day of the ecclesia, in the day of the assembly. And so you have this word being uh, newly used to describe the assembly the gathering of the people of God, and it's about the people. <laughs> and so when you come to the New Testament, and Jesus in Matthew 16, verse 18, talks about his ecclesia, and Paul in Galatians 1, verse 2 talks about the, the ecclesia, the plural churches, a Greek speaker who knows the Old Testament through the Septuagint would immediately connect this new ecclesia to that of old, that now this is a continuation of God's people whom are called out of the world who are different from the world by God's calling, by what God has done with them by His presence with them. And so the Septuagint prepares the idea of the church and that, I think that's one thing you're talking about. And you could go down the list, I'll not belabor this, but the same thing is true for the the Greek word Aongelion, the, the good news, that idea that that's the good news about Jesus in Mark chapter 1 verse one. basic comprehension of what that means, as being a a message of salvation of God's will for his people, that wouldn't have been familiar to people except for the Septuagint's use of that word in Isaiah 40, verse 9, and elsewhere. So there are other examples of this, Um, the word angel, the word covenant, all of these were ideas which were translated from the Hebrew into Greek, I believe, in the fullness of time. You know, Paul has this idea that that God sent his son, Galatians 4, verse 4, in the fullness of time, when the time was right, there was a moment in history when, as it were, things were aligned for him to reveal uh, Jesus. And I think, from what I from my studies, is that one thing that was aligned for us to be able to understand God's will in Jesus Christ was the linguistic background, the languages that were being used to reveal God's will. And you see that in, in all these these words so full of God's purpose and plan for humanity.
0: So if the most original Christian audience would have been Greek-speaking, then they would have relied heavily on the Septuagint. You know, the first century, these first decades of Christian history, there was no New Testament text. They had to rely on the spoken word of the prophets, But they did have the written Old Testament text, which they trusted in, But the Old Testament text that they would have relied on um, would have been the Septuagint, which is why we have so many ancient copies of the Septuagint, because it was produced so much during that time. So I, I try to talk a little bit about the Jewish use of the Septuagint. It seems like prior to Christ, there's not any specific evidence or information about how much the Jewish population did or did not use the Septuagint. I kind of speculated based off of the location and the Jews in Alexandria and so forth. But how much did the Jews use the Septuagint before Christ and after Christ? Did the Jewish population maybe distance themselves from this translation? And would they have done so to distance themselves from the Christian sect? And also, is it possible that because the Septuagint is so well satisfied, the readings of the Septuagint are so well satisfied by the New Testament events, would they maybe stray away from the readings there, or maybe even alter some of the readings so that, so that they are not so perfectly fulfilled by prophecy and fulfillment in the New Testament?
1: Yeah, great, great set of questions. So, three things. One, regarding the the, the Jewish use of, this, of the Septuagint. There, there are a number of conversion lines of evidence um, we do know from the literature of the Hellenistic Judaism that the Septuagint was broadly used among Jews in the in the first and second century uh, before Christ and in the first century CE. And the evidence actually may be a little bit counterintuitive uh, to you. In other words, you would expect to see uh, within, let's say, uh, Jewish Alexandria in Egypt, uh, evidence of the Septuagint's importance, and you do that. I know that you talked about the letter of Aristeus in your last uh, discussion, and and um, much of that letter, uh, we believe, is legendary. There's very little that can be kind of you hang your hat on as historical, historically accurate, including the nature of the translation. It seems to be highly creative uh, history there. But you do, from that, see that there are schools of Jewish thought of practicing Jews who view the Septuagint translation as authoritative and as in use, as inspired. The very mention of the 70 or 72 uh, translators is harkens back to the 70 elders at Sinai in the book of Exodus. I mean, there was there, there's viewed as authoritative text, so both in the diaspora, outside of Palestine, but then even in Israel itself, something that's not often talked about, just to mention, there are a number of Greek texts which are among the Dead Sea Scrolls. And so even within the confines of the Levant, the Holy Land, Israel, there are greek texts which are are clearly viewed as authoritative as important to communities there within israel one thing that's important i think to recognize is is that from the from the very beginning um even to the present day there's recognition of the authority of the original hebrew and so, as you go forward in the the centuries prior to Jesus, and then you mention the ways that Jewish perspectives change on the translation because of Christian identity, as you go forward, there's a, a continual effort to uh, restore or or to not, not so much restore but to um, uh, return to the uh, Hebrew text. And so you'll you'll see different uh, kind of translation approaches, even in the Greek, that are that are trying to not not supplant the Hebrew uh, original, but to give access to it, to get back to the source. And so there's a lot of study in Septuagintal studies about different translation styles in the Septuagint itself. And so scholars will distinguish between uh, translation styles that are, for example, Pentateuchal. In other words, if you go back to some of the uh, the first evidences of the Septuagint, there's a, a word-for-word effort there's a, a very a literal, we might say, it's, it's not the exact right way to put it, but literal translation of the Hebrew. Word ch- order, word choice aligns as best we can tell with the Hebrew. And then you have more elaborative, paraphrastic, is sometimes called, translations, which in certain books are less beholden to the, the literal Hebrew, I'm trying to get at the ideas, but it's still trying to translate the Hebrew. And then what's interesting is in the in the centuries immediately before Jesus, and you see this in the Qumran Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, it's sometimes uh, one portion of this is sometimes called the Kaige movement. If anybody ever studies this, this is what I'm referring to. You see an effort to get back to the original Hebrew, even in the Greek translation. So there's a real focus upon the word order choice. Tim, have you ever read like Young's literal translation of the Bible, right? And it's like the words are stunted, they're stilted, and it's, it, it doesn't make much sense in English, right? But it's, it's trying just to give a word-for-word word account of the original Greek or the Hebrew. My point is, is that throughout history, there's been an effort to get back to what has been recognized throughout history as the original scripture. And so that leads uh, Jews and Christians in time to try to get back to the Hebrew. Um, and the translation that the New Testament writers are using is recognized as a translation. So, yes, to answer your question, there is a move away from the Septuagint in the CE in, in the in the in the AD era after Jesus among Jews, in part because of the predominance of the Septuagint among Christian circles within the Christian scriptures. Um, and there's a whole history of this in, in early Eucharistic literature, how Jews um, have the Septuagint used by Christians in apologetic, polemical context. And so they'll say, whoa, 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 you're quoting from the Septuagint, that's not my Bible. <laughs> and so this becomes an uh, apologetic uh, a debate. Um, one of the great stories of early Christianity is the story of Jerome's translation of the Bible. And we don't have time to get into that, but let me just say this, that Jerome was one whom recognized that the apostles, the early Christian writers in the New Testament, um, used the Septuagint, but he himself recognized the authority of the Hebrew and argued that the the church's Bible uh, should be based upon, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew. And there's wonderful stories about this. The irony is, is that though he is one of the primary sources for what becomes known as the Latin Vulgate, the the Bible which is used within Christian circles for really a thousand years and up to this present day among some, he argues against um, the use of the apocryphal works that were within some of the Septuagint traditions and emphasizes the Hebrew in a way that's counter to what becomes the predominant. Roman Catholic perspective, as represented by Origen and Augustine, just named two names who who argued for the inclusion, for example, of apocryphal works like, works like Sirach and Wisdom of Solomon and, and, and others within the canon. And so today, if you were to take a, a Bible like my ESV and compare it to what is broadly understood as a Jerome or a Catholic Bible, you'd see that a difference is, is that the Catholic, quote-unquote, Roman Catholic Bible includes apocryphal works, Which were in some Septuagints in the time of Jesus. So, all that's to highlight that yes, there's a shift in Jewish perspective. And by the time of the second century uh, A.D., um, the Masoretic text, the Hebrew text of of the rabbinic tradition as preserved within the temple, is coalescing, and it you really have alignment within known Jewish circles that this is the authoritative text, and that comes to uh, a transmitted form. In the 10th, 11th century, in the Leningrad Codex, which is uh, the primary evidence that we have today of the Masoretic tradition, although it's supplemented with other texts. That's broad brush, but it gets at what I want to emphasize, which is even within Greek speaking circles, even within the time of Jesus, where apostles were using the Greek translation, there is broad recognition of the authority of the Hebrew. It's just an inability because of linguistics and, and, and language to uh, get back to that in the first century, oftentimes.
0: So, uh, one example I was wanting to uh, bring up, and this is what I've heard, and uh, maybe you can confirm this uh, one way or the other. In the 22nd Psalm, uh, which says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? which Jesus quotes when on the cross. In that Psalm, there's a great description. Uh, the life of David, but then is to be fulfilled by the crucifixion of Christ. And in that psalm, uh, there's a statement that says that they pierced my hands and my feet, which, obviously, for Bible believers, that rings a bell. And we think of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ, who was nailed to the cross. Now, my understanding is that the Masoretic text reads that differently. The Masoretic text reads that, at my hands and my feet, like a lion, something along, along those lines. Or the enemies are like a lion coming after him. But if I'm not mistaken, upon the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, there were Hebrew texts that rendered it, they pierced my hands and my feet, showing that the, the difference there was not translation. The difference was not necessarily interpretive. But maybe the difference in translation was because of a difference in text base, showing that the they pierced my hands and my feet has an actual text base to support it. Uh, is that accurate, and are there other instances where the Septuagint reading is more perfectly fulfilled by New Testament prophecy than, uh, than maybe the Masoretic text would suggest?
1: Uh, yes, my understanding is that is accurate, and, and so you have an example where the Hebrew text confirms the uh, Septuagint account uh, there. And I, th- I think um, the, the point you're making is, is that, you know, oftentimes the Septuagint reflects what is likely a more original uh, rendering uh, there, and that, that would be likely an example of that. And so, you know, whether or not the Septuagint reflects the original Hebrew does not change the fact that when the inspired writers of the New Testament utilize the Septuagint, their use of the Septuagint, whether it was original or not, is an inspired use, you know? And so I, I do think it's helpful to point out, you know, when we thought that maybe things weren't original, they end up being likely, but just, just to remember that even if that wasn't the case, <laughs> you know, even if it's likely the case that the apostles' use of the, the Septuagint is, is um, secondary in the sense that it wasn't the original Hebrew, doesn't make that translation or that, excuse me, that use of the, the Septuagint any less authoritative. But I think it's helpful from a historical perspective to highlight um, those points.
0: So then what would be your conclusions based off of everything we've talked about and based off of all that you've studied and known about Septuagint and translation? So what are your, kind of coming back to our original question, what is the nature of translation and inspiration, and how can we reconcile the God aspect of inspiration with the human aspect of translation, and, and how can these two work together to provide a trustworthy text for us?
1: This is a great question. And I, I think, you know, for, for some of our listeners, you know, we've just kind of jumped off a cliff <laughs> talking about, you know, the history of the text. And and now we're we're starting to talk about inspiration and and God comes into the picture. And, you know, I think there likely would be people whom I would respect a lot, their their thinking and their minds and their approach to life who would just kind of attune me out. And I understand that. I think that, you know, what you have to ask in your life is um what do you believe is real? What is true? Um, what is good? And what is beautiful? And I think all of us in our heart want to know what's true and want to do what's good and, and want to really live a beautiful life and be able to appreciate uh, what is complete and well-formed and as it should be. And that's going to be different for your different uh, people listening. What what I have come to the conclusion on is that you know, the, we need to ask, how do we know what's true and good and beautiful? And um, my own life has led me to to realize that i I know that through um, the the truths that are spoken by Jesus and I have come to believe in him because of the evidence the historical evidence that I see for the reality that here was someone whom um, by all accounts that I can see actually was raised from the dead so That's something I just want to say for you listeners kind of saying, where is this, where's this guy coming from? I'm gonna say I'm assuming a lot of that. And you all have to go down your own path to coming to those kind of conclusions. I I came to that conclusion because I had people teach me some things, which I looked into and I just realized the evidence is there for committing to this and kind of making my claim that I believe that what this man, who I believe is God, said is true, and the people who he gave his revelation to, I, I believe what they say, and I believe the life that they tell me to live is a good life, and I found that to be the case in my life, and I found true joy in that, although it, it has its hardships, there's no doubt. Um, so I just want to give that as a, as a kind of an introduction to the idea that when I begin with the reality of Jesus' resurrection and, and, and who he is, that leads me to some realizations about what he says is truth. It leads me to believe passages from his apostles in the New Testament that teach us that the not only is the is the Hebrew Bible, which by this time um, of Jesus is clearly, it seems to me, composed of a canon of the of the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Writings. There are a number of, of passages which um, would lead me to point that out. Uh, uh, among them are Zachariah seven twelve, Jeremiah eighteen eighteen, and Luke twenty four forty four. But there are others. Um, th- the the point being is that there are writings from the ancient world, Israel and the early Christians, which are inspired. And by that, I just think that means uh, what the Bible says it means is that that comes from God. The literal phrase is oftentimes used: is it breathed out by God? It comes from His Holy Spirit. It's sacred writings. It contains the wisdom of God. Uh, and if we you know have faith in it, we believe in it. It can save us because I, I I come to believe I need to be saved from my own sin, my own errors in life. So. Basically, inspiration means it's a writing given by God. A key passage for me in that is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16, if someone wants to look that up in the Bible. Um, but here's the thing, in terms of the, the um, application to our conversation today, which I know you're wanting me to get to, um, when we talk about the Septuagint and the Greek translation and its relationship to the, the Masoretic text, the Hebrew Bible. I think that we, we need to, to distinguish two types of authority of Scripture. So when we talk about inspiration, I believe, you know, that the inspired Scripture is the text which uh, God has given to men down through the generations for us to live by. That's the original text that um, we have talked about how we can know what it says in this very podcast. And so what we've seen is, is that in every case in the Old Testament, that was, a, it seems to be originally written down in, in Hebrew. And so the Hebrew Bible, the Hebrew form of the Old Testament, is the normative scripture of God. It's the, the inspired text that we use for faith and practice. Now, what we see is, is that there are translations of that, um, which are derivative, um, and so they are not in the same sense at, at all inspired. They're not normative in, in that same way. And you see the, the Greek translations clearly at times diverging from the Hebrew. And what we've said is we can sometimes use the Greek to kind of get back to the Hebrew, but it's always trying to get back to that original. So what we, we don't want to say is that, that uh, I would say, is that the, the Septuagint is, is normative in the same way that the Hebrew scriptures are normative. It's a translation, and as such, certainly God can guide it and can providentially uh, direct it, but it's it's not the inspired Word of God in the sense that it was the original that came from God. It was breathed out by God and revealed to Israel, and, and we see the mighty works of God in that. Um, but what we do see is that the first-century Christians, the, the apostles who were the inspired witnesses to, to what God was up to in Jesus in, in the first century, they use the Septuagint as a a derivative word of God. They believe that it's providentially guided as a translation of Scripture that conveys God's words to God's people, and they, by God's Spirit, quote it. They use it, sometimes in some creative ways. And that use of the Septuagint then based upon statements uh, that Paul makes about his own writing, Jesus about his own words, Peter about Paul's own writings and his own words, that is Scripture. That use of that derivative text, that translation, becomes normative Scripture now as the New Covenant, as the New uh, Testament. And so I think, you know, as we as Christians, if you're a Christian, you, you, you need to appreciate the authority of the Septuagint for the early Christians. To recognize it doesn't. it's not the, the same as the inspired Hebrew text, which is the original, but just like you and I use an English translation, you know, and we know that that English translation is subject to, you know, change and, and New Testament authors were the inspired word of God that were, that came from God, that were breathed out by God, that, that are sacred writings that contain the wisdom of God and that we need to believe and trust and obey so we can be saved those are uh, the inspired word of God. And so I think this sort of discussion of the Septuagint is is helpful to understanding both how the New Testament came to us, but also to understand how God's will works down through time in a way that is translated um, to people who speak different languages, but still has an authoritative source. And that's the thing I'm convicted by, is that we still need to go back to that origin that source, whether it's in translation or in the original Hebrew and Greek, and in order to know what we should do. And so ultimately, this is where I'll conclude the, the story of the, the Masoretic text and the Septuagint translation is a story, I think the moral of which is, is that we need to go back to the sources. We need to go back to the original in order to know what God's will for us is. And I think as a historian, but then also as a Christian, my, my goal is to try to get back as best I can to what God first said, recognizing that at the end it's going to be by his grace, uh, by his mercy, that I stand before him, and um, hopefully and am pleasing to him, not by my effort. So I recognize all that here at the end, and would, would just encourage your audience to to study this more, and to think about it more, and to make their draw their own conclusions. Um, if I can be of help to him, I'd be happy to talk to him. You know, um, a lot of what I Write and Teach is available now at, at the church website where I work, and they can find that at uh, marinerschurchofchrist.com. Again, that's um, marinerchurchofchrist.com, and you can have find contact information for phone number and email there and some of the materials that I have done on this and, and other topics. So they would be happy to talk to anybody about this. Tim, I'm so grateful for this opportunity to speak to you about this,
0: no, this has been a great pleasure. On uh, behalf of myself and all of our listeners, uh, big, big thanks. We, uh, we're getting into deeper waters and we've extended our legs down and our feet are not touching any surface yet. And um, there's uh, obviously so much more that can be considered here, but I'm pretty anxious to, to go back and re-listen to this podcast. I don't have to hear myself talk the whole time. I can go back and uh, re-listen to what you've been sharing with us and um, try to make sure it sinks in a little bit deeper. Thanks again so much, John. This has been uh, such a pleasure. Um, And thanks again for uh, the time you shared with us.
1: It's such a joy. Thanks again for the opportunity. Take care now.
0: There you have it. We're just scratching the surface, but hopefully this has provided you with a good overall understanding of these two ancient texts and how they impact the Bibles that we read from today. I appreciate your interest in these topics, and I hope this podcast can continue to provide you with helpful information so that you can have confidence in the modern-day biblical text. As always, please review, subscribe, share with your friends. Until next time, grace and peace.